0: All right. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This episode of literally is sponsored by Lexicon and Line. Case, tell us a little something about Lexicon and Line.
1: Uh, Lexicon and Line does three things. They they are communications consultants. They teach professional business writing and speaking courses, and they are research and data evaluation experts.
0: And you can find everything about Lexicon and Line at lexicononline.com. Please give them a visit. And thank you so much for sponsoring this podcast, Lexicon and Line.
2: This is who I am now. A headless woman, a four legged woman, an inside talker for the Bed of Nails Act, sitting on the strong man as he lies on the nails. An inside talker for the contortionist act. This is my most important role. I'm now a moneymaker. My new world is full of boxes the boxes I put my head inside, the semis container we live inside. I run between acts as the show cycles through from first act to last act every 30 minutes, the same pattern of movement between my four acts, so that already by noon on opening day of being an inside performer, I could have shown up where and when I was needed almost automatically, my feet moving by themselves. I still don't have much in the way of actual skills to perform, not really, not like everyone else out here, but I know how to talk into a mic. I can look straight into an audience member's eyes and, with a smile, lie. When I am not talking into the mic, though, I present my body in various forms. These, for example, are the instructions for losing your head. Put on your hospital gown. Step quietly onto the rickety side stage and prepare to slide sideways into the chair. Try not to ruffle the curtains surrounding it. If you do ruffle the curtains, or even if you don't, a child or teenager or adult might pull the curtains away from the stage anyway, peering inside at you. She will catch you with your attached head right there, mid-slide into the illusion. I slide off my mom's brace, the sock beneath. She is sitting on the bed, knows now, with practice, to let the muscles on the left side of her body flare, then squeeze, and hold the bones of her whole body together, an ocean keeping a tree upright, afloat, way, way out. It is the last few days before I leave for the sideshow, before the lovers will sail off into the Atlantic. I unzip her vest, remove her glasses. There is much work to be done to keep up with the rush of life on the vertical plane, the y-axis. All the therapies, all the doctors working toward that y. My mom peers past my busy hands to my face. She wears a grimace, a furrow of concentration. She isn't wearing a helmet today, not anymore, even though beneath her shaggy gray hair, her skull has a ledge. The absence of bone creates a canyon over a quarter of her head, where, just below the skin surface, her brain is firing and firing and always still bleeding. Miss Olga Hess, the headless woman, is a miracle of modern science. When the curtain is opened and they look at you, the audience will see a full woman's body, arms and legs flailing, in a chair surrounded by plastic tubes that light up red and green and blue, sparkly. They'll see the chest and collarbone of a woman's body and then, apparently piercing the flesh, a metal pole where a head should be. You've entered into the world of box jumpers, women who run backstage between illusions, sliding their bodies into one box and then the other. Spider women, electric women, four-legged women, you're all body. You are part of a long tradition of women who have lost parts of themselves. You will be whole only when nobody is looking at you. My mom holds my shoulder with her one good arm as we lean down toward the bed. I shift her hips, lift the right leg onto the bed, hear the crinkle of her diaper, a word we never use in front of her, her short baby breaths and a dog barking outside. Usually this is where I tuck her in, kiss her forehead and leave. I set my running shoes, move as quickly as I can on foot down the shaded trees of my hometown, breathing hard, trying not to notice neighbors who want to talk about her prognosis. Or I close myself into the kitchen to do homework, grade papers, or hustle around the stove to prepare a meal, or walk slow circles in the bathroom and talk myself out of taking any of the painkillers singing their siren songs in their orange dresses. If someone is holding the curtain open who should not be holding the curtain open, politely ask her to close the curtain. Change your tone as the day wears on and you become more tired as the fair goes on. Use the loudest mean whisper you can. Say, shut the curtain. Then use only your arm when you see a peeker, a fast, wide swipe across the air in front of you toward their body, a warning. And then, as you are into hour 14 of performing, month 4 of being on the road, say nothing at all. Kick hard and fast toward the body of the person staring at you. Try to avoid contact, but don't worry if you don't succeed. As you slide into the chair sideways, your body tipping low and back, There's a moment of vulnerability where you cannot yank the curtain shut or make contact because you're lying too far back to get flat is dangerous. Instead of leaving, I lie down. I am tired. I hold open the covers and slide in beside her. Why this time? She turns to me, takes that one good hand and places it on my cheek. It is warm and dry and gentle. We've left the vertical plane where I hold her up and wipe her crack. We are horizontal people now, and somehow that shift has reorganized the nature of how and who we once were to each other. Her hand is on my cheek, my hair, is the move a mother makes to her child. She slides her fingers along my neck, runs them very softly through my hair. It has been too many years since I have felt this much tenderness and I don't have a place for it anymore. That's the awful price of coping. The metal post, as big around as a flagpole, sticks down a foot from the wooden box you need to slide your head inside once you sit in the chair. Crane your neck around the pole. Do not hit your head or you'll make a noise. Scooch back against the chair and straighten your spine and stretch your neck all the way up inside the wooden box, mirrored on the outside, tight and hot on the inside. Drape the blanket across your lap to look like what a sick person should look like, and arch your back. Sit straight so the metal pole presses its angled tip against your breastbone, into the freckled hollow between and just above your breasts. Press it hard enough so that this spot will, for the next three months, be a little bruised in service of the illusion. Hunch your shoulders forward to cover any space behind the box, and ready your arms to grasp out wild and blind once the curtain is pulled. Never reach your hands higher than your shoulders. Never try to touch your own headless head, or your hands may shine back in the mirror to the audience. And then what miracle will they believe in? Instead, spread your fingers wide and keep them low, parallel to the dirt, reaching for the earth, shaking and alive, very alive, trapped in this headless body, escaping into the greatness of your own illusion. We are two soft, horizontal bodies breathing. Other mothers and other daughters in the world and in time lie side by side and pass on the secrets of the universe. My mother's waved, soft gray hair falls across the missing chunks of her head. Does she think about what's gone or what remains? I want to reach my hand out and trace the edges of her missing skull, but I'm paralyzed. No, she is paralyzed. Half of her is struck still. With the other half, she's running her fingers through my hair. Tears are pouring out the corners of my eyes and my hands are moving up to catch them because we've been warned by all the specialty doctors that we may not cry in front of her, may not show her our sorrow for fear of killing her hope. Hope there is not a yellow jacket stuck inside the small wooden box your head must stay in for the duration of the act. Hope it is not 107 degrees and hope you don't faint with your face in the heat box, your body under extra blankets and costumes. Hope you'll be able to regain your head after the curtain closes and you slide sideways out of the box. Hope you won't have to kick any strangers on the way out. Hope your shoes are where you left them and haven't fallen behind the stage. Hope your makeup hasn't melted completely off. Hope you're suffering enough to begin to understand the suffering of others. When you move between the worlds of head and no head, know that you must move parallel to the earth. You must change your plane, reinvent your orientation until in front of you is sky and below you is the black earth. And that is your passageway, sister, mother, box jumper. You are your own door into a world of a different kind. You X-axis, you flattened miracle.
0: Confronting authors with real questions about the writing process, the difficult and disheartening publishing industry, and why anyone would choose to torture themselves in the world of writing, this is the Literally Podcast with your host, writer, runner, and the literary voice of Ogden, Utah, Case Johnston. Exposing literature, the authors the business the process the literally podcast
1: thank you uh, I feel like out of all of of the chapters you could read from this one this chapter um, and that excerpt feels almost like a full poem does that does that mm-hmm. make sense to you it feels like yeah. the, your your breaks within the prose are stanza breaks, and the rest are just. in the entirety of it is a, it feels more like a lyrical poem in the middle of a memoir. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's beautifully done, um, and so I'm glad you I'm glad you read the entirety of it um, for 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 our listeners. Um, thank you.
2: Yeah, thanks for thanks for encouraging me to go on. Yeah. I, I as I said in the beginning, I've actually never read that part out loud before, so it was really. It was kind of cool to connect back to it. It's been a long time.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. And um, no, it was a great piece, and we're glad to have the exclusive. Um, (laughs) This is Case Johnston. This is a Literally Podcast. We're broadcasting from my home in Ogden, Utah. Today, we're talking to Tessa Fontaine, the author of The Electric Woman. Tessa Fontaine is the author of The Electric Woman, a memoir in Death Defying Acts, a New York Times editor's pick, a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writer's pick, an Amazon editor's Best of the Month featured debut, and Amazon Best Books of 2018 and more. Tessa spent the 2013 season performing with the last American traveling circus sideshow, The World of Wonders. Essays about the, sides, the sideshow won the 2016 AWP Intro Award in Nonfiction and have appeared in The Rumpus, Hayden's Fairy Review, Autry, and and elsewhere. Other work can be found in Glamour, The Believer, Lit Hub, FSG's Works in Progress, Grave Nonfiction, The Normal School, The Seneca Review, Diagram, New Orleans Review, Pank, and Brevity. Raised outside San Francisco, Tessa got her MFA from the University of Alabama, and is currently a doctoral student in creative writing at the University of Utah. She's received awards and fellowships from the from Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, the Taft Nicholson Center, Riding by Writers, Squaw Valley Community of Writers, and taught for the New York Times Summer Journeys, as well as founding a Salt Lake City Writers in the school's program. She currently lives in currently lives in South Carolina with her fella and a pup. Around the country, she has performed her one-woman her one-woman plays in theaters ranging from New York to San Francisco. The scar on her cheek from a 2 a.m. whip act is slowly fading. Um, which is sad. Uh, we <laughs> want those to stay around. That's a story I forever. Um, and what she w- and going back to the reading what Tessa just read, I think it's a not only is it so poetic, and I'm glad that she finished it out because it was it would seem like a poem that was unfinished. Um, I think it's a great glimpse into the memoir itself that is um a mix of this journey that uh, Tessa went on with the slideshow as well as the journey she went on um, with losing her mom. Um, if you haven't picked up the book, you should, I, um, read it three months ago and have been waiting to talk to Tessa f- uh, that long. And so I'm so glad that, uh, we can talk to her today. So my first question is looking at, at this, that this journey, can you give us, or the, for those of us who haven't, for those who haven't read the book, a glimpse into where it all began?
2: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And, um, thanks again so much for having me on here. Um, Yeah. So the, the sideshow journey kind of began, um, when I was actually going to school, I was getting an MFA at the university of Alabama. And, um, and I learned that there was this one town in Florida where, um, sideshow performers went to retire and, and would go live in the off season. And, um, and I learned that it was like the only town that had a postal counter designed for little people and that the town had changed its legislation to allow for like people to have elephants and tigers in their yard <laughs> and knife throwing. And, um, and so I just kind of started learning these facts about this town that made it seem very much outside of what seemed real. It sort of had this mythology about it. And so I went down there and um, started just kind of snooping around and calling strangers and sort of pretending I was a journalist, which I was not and am not. But uh, it turns out if you just say you are, people just let you kind of do whatever you want. Yeah, (laughs) great, great tip. Um, And um, and so, yeah, eventually just kind of met the the owners of this sideshow. And it's it's the only sideshow, the only traditional sideshow that still operates in America, it's been going on for, for years and years. And, um, and they let me, you know, see the show and ask them a bunch of questions. And I just, um, I kind of just became like a barnacle to them. Like, I just kept hanging around and wanting to ask more questions. And, um, and so finally, the boss was just like, oh, if you want to understand what all this is about, why don't you just join us for a season? Um, and so I said, yes. And I think if this had happened at a different, Point in my life, I absolutely would have said no. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think, it was very much had to do with, um, you know, my mom had had this massive stroke a few years before, and then, kind of more than that, um, she had just gotten out of the hospital not very long before. Um, my stepdad decided to take her on this journey around the world. They had always wanted to go to Italy and um, had never been able to swing it financially or anything, and so. Um, or just because life was always too busy. And so he decided like, screw it, we're just going to go for it. And, you know, she's probably going to die soon. So we might as well go die somewhere beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's a lovely romantic idea, like if strangers are coming up with it, but it's really horrifying to have your family decide that. Um, right. Right. Ray. And so, yeah, it felt like, um, you know, this kind of Invitation to quite literally run away with a circus sideshow Mm -hmm. kind of presented itself, and it sort of felt like the only possibility.
1: And then you went.
2: And then I went. Yeah, Yeah. and I went right. um, And
1: it and it it paints a a different picture than the um, the world's greatest showman with the you know with the huge. I mean, I mean, and and I love it about it. It's gritty. I mean, this is so gritty. This is such a gritty a gritty book all the way through. And I mean, gritty in in such a positive way, you know, in a positive, authentic, uh, in a positive, authentic way. Um, it's, and it's delivered and it shows that grittiness throughout, throughout the book. Um, I appreciate (laughs) it. Yeah. Sorry. Go, no, go.
2: Oh no. It's, it's funny that you bring up, um, the greatest showman because, so I actually saw that pretty recently, and I feel like I mean we definitely have kind of a romanticized idea about the circus in general um, culturally, and and particularly about P.T. Barnum, who is really at the center of that movie as him being kind of like this, um, you know, this like you know sort of businessman but also sort of this inventor of the showman who treated all people equally and um and i mean it's just basically like a disney version of the little mermaid right when we know the tale of the little mermaid is Mm -hmm. actually pretty horrifying or something really dark yeah really dark yeah Mm -hmm. and i and i think the same is is definitely true for what life in in the circus and sideshow is like for sure
1: yeah um I, uh, I had emailed Tessa earlier when I was reading the book about one, one chapter in particular, and that was a uh, chapter four, the dragon. And I, and I was just in the middle of the book when I read that. And then I finished the book and that chapter still, still stuck with me, um, toward the very end because it's a, it's, it's it was a harsh, it was a harsh chapter, but beautifully written, um, that was heartbreaking, but beautiful at the same time. And, um, good memoirists, obviously, uh, do that do that really really well and it's it's a chapter about how you know falling out between a daughter and a mom um and of course a daughter who looks back later on in life and sees sees herself in that scene and wishes uh wishes she were she played that scene differently um can you talk about that in the sense of as a writer being able to voice that voice those honestly vulnerable, uh, parts of your memory, um, on the page?
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, those were definitely the hardest parts to write. Um, and I, I actually never, I never, never intended to write a memoir. And I didn't even think that this was a memoir basically until my publisher was like, yeah, we, of course it's a memoir, you idiot. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah. And so, um, I, I, it was sort of a surprise to me that, that in order for this story to have all of the dimensions that I wanted it to have and hoped that it would have, that it would require really kind of excavating some of those incredibly deep and painful um, memories and experiences. And uh, it also ended up being some of the most helpful things I've ever done, one of the most helpful things I've ever done. And so I think this about writing, like, I, I think that writing is not I think that the idea that writing is always therapeutic is is a wrong idea for mm-hmm. me. I don't think that writing is always therapeutic. I don't think it should always have to be therapeutic. I think there are a lot of different reasons that people write, and that's great. Right. Um, I think sometimes it it is. Sometimes it happens to be um, very helpful. And for me, I'm like a pretty mediocre talker. I'm like a pretty mediocre liver of my life in <laughs> in sort of an oral tradition. Right. But, I have to write things down truly genuinely to figure out what I think about something. What's the truth about the experience of something for me. Um, and so in some ways, actually writing out a bunch of these early experiences with my mom, it was kind of the first time I was confronting them in a really deep way um, that, you know, was both really, really difficult, but also, totally necessary for me to kind of let go of a little bit of that stuff. And and I think really this is one of the wonderful things that writing in general can do for us, which is that, um, you know, anytime you're writing, you are in some way, you know, usually you're trying to create a version of a a rounded character. And, And so that means that you're writing someone, you know, with their good parts and also their flaws. And um, I found this, I found this happening when I was, when I was writing this book, which is I would write about, I would write, you know, a moment with someone and I, and I would read it and think like, oh man, I really kind of like paint that person, you know, like in not a very nice way. Mm -hmm. And, and that would, that would force me to kind of reinvestigate what, why I thought that way about them or what my culpability was in that moment. Or it just like, it caused me to have to reevaluate and figure out, you know, like, try to think about things from their point of view or what was right. going on in their life at that moment. And so I think the same thing happened with my mom where writing all this out made me have to think about her as a whole person instead of as like the, the kind of young kid that was wounded. Um, and, and so it had made me also kind of have to own up to a lot of, of stuff that I regretted. So um, it was really hard and totally necessary, I guess, in, in short. <laughs>
1: No, yeah, that's that's um did you find yourself going back and revising when you when you looked like like if you read it the first time and you you saw this person that you're like, "Oh, I kind of painted them kind of shitty." Um, you know, did you find yourself going back and revising and within that deeper look uh, expanding the prose or 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 giving more of uh giving more of your faults to balance it out?
2: Yeah, I did a little bit. Um, I mean, certainly I I I think, actually, in some ways, almost the opposite happened, to be mm-hmm. honest. And that is, um, I really, like, front-loaded this pretty heavy with a lot of my faults. Right. Kind of, like, hear all of the really bad things about me. And and then I would make these um, kind of, like, vague allusions to painful things that had happened, like, with my mom or something. And so my editor would get to those moments and be like, what are you talking about? Right. What, right. What, what is this, like poetic, lyric, totally sure. incomprehensible yeah. line where you're yeah. like referencing the years of sorrow and and so um it was so helpful to have an outside person kind oh. of be like, what what you know what 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 are you actually trying to get at here and, and what do you mean? And so um it it that is I think one of the things that made me kind of have to go through the specifics of it. And then and in some ways like kind of writing out some of these moments um, made them less painful, I think, you know, like yeah. like a like a hazy a hazy idea about something is so much more painful than the thing itself like mm-hmm. the experience itself you know once you get to the specifics of what happened it kind of like releases you in some way and and i think that um in in writing nonfiction that that happens all the time especially with personal nonfiction so yeah i think more the revi- the revision that happened that like tempered it down a little bit was like there were just a couple moments with other sideshow performers where I had like gotten in tiffs with people and, right. and, and so especially one person. And so um, revising, revising some of those scenes toward thinking like, actually, you know, I need to have a little bit more compassion for this person and try to think through um, the ways in which their life has been totally difficult up to this point and, and how that might play into how I'm thinking about them.
1: Yeah, it's it comes across really really well and it's really crazy because you you talk about how your process was with it and as a reader you, it's so smooth that you wouldn't be able to see you can't see uh, where you would have had to gone back and change things. Does that make sense? Uh, <laughs> it and, does, if, and also that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, if, um, that's a good, I mean, good writers and good editors working together can can do that. Um, but it's it's. I, I mean, I I, I think w- when we going back to the chapter four is uh, kind of when uh, that vulnerability really came to the front. And mm. at that point was where, um, or the, the dragon chapter, that's where I was like, okay, I'm with Tessa, I'm going with the rest <laughs> of this book, you know, and I am in and I am ready to, you know, and that's when I, that's the, you don't put it down part of reading a book. Um, uh, mm. mine came during that chapter where, okay, I'm not putting this book down until it's finished. Wow. Um, and yeah. so, uh, it was really, really well done. Um, I, I, there's one thing in this book and I, th- I, I, and I hope I'm, I hope I'm the first one that asks you about this because <laughs> I really, uh, there was one line in this book, uh, well, one discussion that has stuck with me too. Mm. And it was when you were talking to your dad mm-hmm. and he said that he always believed that they, you, him and, and your mom would end up together. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to me, I sat on that page, um, for a really long time and I reread it and I thought, uh, you know that's a really powerful that's a really powerful uh thing to say or a thing to convey that after all this time he was just you know in his brain he thought they were they would just end up together um did that strike I mean obviously it did because it's in the book but how did that strike you initially
2: I mean it was a. It was, a, it was a really weird conversation. Mm-hmm. Like you grow up with these parents who just hate each other in, in all, you know, in all of the ways. And so I think um, learning not only that there is love from the past, but that there's some idea of, of uh, a future connection like that was, yeah, it was totally shocking to me. And I think it was also a moment of, of, and I, I mean, all of us go through this in some version or another, right? This process of, of really separating from your parents and understanding them as, you know, whole flawed adults, right? This is something I think maybe some people go through when they're teenagers, some people in their twenties, some people maybe never do, but. Um, I think my was, son's
1: figuring it out at seven already. <laughs> oh, is he? <laughs> Dad, a smart d- kid. Dad's really flawed. yeah sorry go on well good he won't have a painful yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) um
2: yeah but I think it it was a moment where I remember calling him and thinking like I can't wait to be comforted by this person by this really sad and horrible thing that's happening to my mom and it was this big surprise to me to think like oh he's not going to comfort me um he is now dealing with a heartbreak too Mm -hmm. um And, and that was, you know, really hard and lonely at first. And then in some ways it felt like, um, I don't know, it felt sort of good to think like, actually there are a lot of people who, you know, really love her in very different ways and and have over very different periods, you know, different periods of time. And, and, um, and we can sort of all have our own versions of, of that loss and grief and, and trying to figure out, you know, what how you think about a person and, and especially I mean my the situation with my mom was pretty unique in that she um, had these strokes and and lost the ability to talk or walk um, but she ended up staying alive for quite a while after that and so um, it was sort of this in between, phase we were in for a really long time where the person she had been was absolutely not there anymore. Um, But she also was very much alive and required an incredible amount of care. And so it was a really extended version of sort of like a new person entering your life Mm -hmm. who, you know, you, you love and, and, and you have a history with, but also um, none of your interactions resemble what they did before. Um, So yeah, it, it, it was a it was a complicated piece of the puzzle, but um, but ultimately pretty great. And here here's something actually. So I my dad recently was like, oh yeah, I read the book, and you know that that scene where you talk about me and your mom, um, that wasn't right. I was oh like, yeah. What? and this is like one of the perils of, of writing personal yes, non too right yeah, yeah. like mm-hmm. people have their own interpretations and I tried to do I did due diligence for a lot of this book and kind of cross-referencing my stories but I didn't in this in that particular moment um, and he was like no it was your mom that told me that she wanted to end up together smoking cigars one day it wasn't my idea it was her idea um, and so that and so uh, that 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 it had come from that it had been sort of like i don't know i had just this idea that he was really kind of romantic and lonely for her but actually maybe it was just a co- more complicated story than i had believed so
1: yeah but yeah. It's, but he held on to it you yeah. know you know what i mean um and told you about it which says something um mm-hmm. and but that but that's really of course you that's the whole can of worms with nonfiction. That you oh, w- we can't get into. I mean, we could, but you know, <laughs> maybe at a- AWP this year we'll have a drink. We'll all talk about yeah, that. Yeah, you know? uh, that sounds good. But uh, you know, and and Brandon's heard that a uh, hundred times about what what is what is truth and how do we do this and um, yeah. you know. Uh, but I uh, yeah we get it and I in that scene I think that scene too. It ta- I think it shows even something bigger than the. Ro- I mean, I love the romanticism in it. You know, the the wishful mm-hmm. thinking. Um, but I also think it talks to you about how short time is, you know, I think mm. it's a really good kind of signifier of our lives are so short and we, something that seems like with you, with your mom and dad, I'm guessing, I mean, they were apart most of your life and mm-hmm. it seems like a long time to you, but probably to them, as we get grow older, we feel like it was just yesterday and they could end up with three, you know, smoking cigars yeah. and, and, uh, Ending up together—it's it was powerful for me, and I think it was powerful for me just because it looks like, I swear, life goes by so fast. And it was a scene mm-hmm. that just says, "Oh yeah, well, I know that all this stuff has passed, but you know, we could just still end up together." <laughs> um, so it was—that was—it was—it kind of blew my mind. I—I I don't know. Like I said, I hope. I'm, I think about weird things with books, but that's the one, that's the, (laughs) that's the one that got, that's one of the ones that got me. Oh,
2: I'm very glad to know that. Yeah. You are indeed the only person that's, I
1: (laughs) I tell you, I sat on that page for, for, well, because it's so, uh, it's so real. And I could, I was at that point, like I said, I was with you and I was imagining just like, I can't, I don't know how it'd feel if, if I were her. This is the Literally Podcast. This is Case Johnston. Uh, today we're talking with <laughs> Tessa Fant- Fontaine, the author of The Electric Woman, that is doing really, really well. Um, uh, a book about, a dual narrative about uh, uh, Tessa's time in a side choke, traveling across the country, and at the same time, um, losing her mom after a series of of really serious strokes. Um, we've talked a lot about the family aspect of, of your book so far, and that's 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 partly my fault, because... Uh, with memoir i I really that's you know those are the things that get me um but mm-hmm. there's a whole other aspect to this book and it's probably it's a large aspect it's it's half of this book is is your time traveling throughout the country um doing sideshow acts and I wonder do you, do you ever dream of snakes you know I mean there's a brand <laughs> new i but,
2: do yeah i bet you do oh, yeah yeah i have i actually like have this i have this um Sometimes I think of it like a premonition, but it's actually just probably a fear. But I'm always sure that there's going to be a snake behind my like in the bathroom behind the toilet. I don't know why every time I walk into a bathroom, especially now I live in the south. And so Mm -hmm. every time I walk into a bathroom, I'm like, Oh, boy, here we go dealing with the snakes again. And, you know, near the toilet and like, No snakes in my bathroom, but one day there's gonna be. Yeah. Oh man. Well, Mm -hmm. and and
1: to let Brandon know, and to those listening, I mean, there are parts in the book where there are large snakes wrapped around uh, Tessa's neck and body. And uh, my mom would die. She couldn't read this book because she's so fearful (laughs) of snakes that she. But for those who haven't read it, um, can you tell us about like some of the most um, telling parts of being on the sideshow. And that doesn't necessarily be, of course, have to be the, the, the death defying acts, but they can be, uh, the underbelly of it or something that's, you know, cause it's been what three, well, it's been five years now. Has it been five years? Yeah. Five years. Yeah. What are, what are mm-hmm. the things like, obviously when you're there, you're thinking, okay, I'll remember this snake around my head forever. Um, <laughs> but, but what are the things that you do remember the most when you think about that time?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm yeah you know interestingly I guess um, it isn't the acts themselves I think that um, feel the most emblematic of the sideshow and I think that um, I think that the acts so, so we performed a grind show, which means that you perform the same show over and over again from the time the carnival opens, which is maybe 9 a.m. until the, t- the time the carnival closes, which is maybe midnight. So you're performing, you know, maybe 15 hours a day, act to act, back to back without taking any breaks. Um, and so it becomes in some ways like both it's both really dangerous what you're doing like you're swallowing swords and eating Mm -hmm. fire and you have snakes around your body you're throwing knives sitting on an electric chair but it's also like totally boring because you know you're you're doing each of those things you know 30 40 50 times a day maybe more um and so it's a really bizarre mix of of i think like at totally spacing out and not paying attention to what you're doing and also knowing that at any moment you could kill yourself very easily. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I can think about that, about the monotony of it. Um, but I think the thing that really kind of, when I, I don't know, when I think about my time there, the thing that was actually the hardest, it was not those acts, those acts became, yeah, just very second nature, but We all lived, all of us performers lived in the back of a semi-truck, like in the container of a semi-truck together. Um, we didn't have, uh, you know, rooms with doors, we didn't have, there was no plumbing, you know, no water or bathrooms or anything. And we were just in an, a super contained space that was open to the elements, because the sides of it were open, For well, one side folded down into our stage, um, and the back end was usually open as well. And so, um, I mean, I've never just been so physically close to a right. group of people yeah. all the time and that part was probably the hardest mm-hmm. um, not having any privacy or any moment to like just be alone for a second or you know if you if you even wanted to you know talk to someone on the phone like way late at night once the fair was over you know and you would have to walk way down somewhere into Carneyland to try to you know have a moment of privacy or whatever so I think just the the, what it was like to just be in the constraints of that world. That's what I think about still like the days that I wake up and I'm grumpy, but I'm like, Oh, but I could walk into my kitchen yeah. and cook some eggs yeah. and close the door. Right. Like, this is living large. Yeah. yeah.
1: There's nobody, you know, passed out right next to me snoring and gross. Yeah. And, and the book does that so well. I mean, there are a few chapters that are the day in the life chapters. I think the one where you're talking to your brother, Mm -hmm. when he, you know, you're like, he's like, how's your day? And you're like, I could tell him all these things, um, but I'm going to tell him it's just fine, (laughs) you know, because it's, it was a really nice chapter that went through the, the monot, not only the monotony of the day or how it can become monotonous, but the, the, the continued movement of the day that you're up early, you're Mm -hmm. moving this, you're just, um, and so those who are interested, I mean, they, it's a great view into what it's like to be on the road with people, um, and doing these things in the type of people that choose to do these things. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, it was, it was enlightening and fun. And, um, it's a book that I suggested that, that everybody, everybody pick up. Um, <laughs> I really do. Yeah. And so looking at that, that day-to-day stuff, was there any time where you felt like, you know, I just, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go. I'm just done every day. Okay. (laughs) Every day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Without fail every day. Um, and I mean, there were plenty of days where I would look up, um, plane flights or bus, you know, nearest bus station, nearest airport, plane flight out of there. Um, yeah, I thought about it all the time. Uh, but there was this piece of me that felt like I, I just felt like if my mom can do what she's doing and going through right now in all of this physical therapy and in the amount of pain that she's in, I mean, essentially being stuck inside a body and a mind that no longer really work. Like if she's doing that, I can survive a few months out here on the road. And so I, I really like, I just couldn't bring myself to give up. I think the idea of giving up on the sideshow somehow got conflated in my mind with the idea of giving up on her or giving up on how hard she was working or something. And so I couldn't do it. I just, I felt like I just had to stick it out. And oh man, sometimes it was, it was brutal. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it was really brutal. And I wanted, yeah, wanted to leave pretty badly. Um, But ultimately, I mean, I think that I, I think it would have been one of those things I also would have regretted. Yeah for forever had I not had I not stuck it out
1: yeah and the the interesting part about it is your mom was traveling for a good portion of the time too correct
2: right yeah so they did leave on that this that long delayed journey to Italy that they always 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 Mm -hmm. wanted to take they they went on it and um she didn't have a bone plate in her head anymore because of her brain just was always Mm -hmm. bleeding and so she couldn't go on an airplane so they took a boat they took a train from California to New York and then a boat from New York over to Italy and, and they were, yeah, they were traveling the same time that I was on the road. Um, and, and so I didn't actually get to talk to them very much because they were, you know, in the middle of the ocean or, or mm-hmm. too busy, like, uh, cruising the streets of Rome. And so, um, that was also a really kind of strange experience to have to let go a little bit of the amount of kind of obsessive. Um, just checking in, I had been doing, um, for so long and, and, um, just kind of knowing like, you know, there's, there's this chance that they were very honest about that they're not going to come back. And and Mm -hmm. somehow I have to sort of like find some semblance of peace with that. Um, you know, which I don't know that I ever totally did, but I sure, sure tried, or at least was too busy, um, you know, too busy eating fire to to get to spend a lot of time thinking about, Mm -hmm. yeah. Right.
1: yeah it's it's a telling book about both of these things it's there's there, there are two journeys going on and um, j- my last question always is if, if is there anything that you would want to tell people about the book um, that i haven't asked or we haven't discussed yet that you want them to know about either the journey of of being in the sideshow or or, or with with your mom um, that you'd want people to know while they read it
2: um i don't know exactly about mm-hmm while they read it but i think i think one thing that um you know i I sort of found to be incredibly true and it's something that i try to think about a lot because i think it still is something that i need to be reminded of all the time um like i i I go to these events you know I'll, i'll go to a book reading or a literary festival or something and i encounter people who have read the book which is so wonderful and they're like oh you must not be afraid of anything I'm like, please, I am still afraid of so many things, you know. Um, and, and so I think I think about this, though, be that I have to remind myself that it's fine to be afraid. And, and it's fine to be um, unsure about something. But that also doesn't mean that you shouldn't do that thing. And so, like, you know, many times, I think fear is a good guide for us to sort of, you know, help us decide what to do and what not to do. And then sometimes it's really an unhelpful guide. And and like, there's no reason that, you know, I should have been okay, like sitting on an electric chair. Yeah. And, and there's, and there's also no reason that I should have been okay. um, You know, sort of letting my mom go in this incredibly slow way. But I think even more than letting her go, figuring out how to be okay with the fact that we had had a really hard and difficult relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there, there was sort of no easy path and there was no, you know, big tearful conversation where we like found some peace. It was just a matter of kind of going into the, into the nastiness and being afraid of it and having it be painful. And, and then that was just what it was. Um, so I don't know, I guess for, I would be, you know, delighted for anyone to read it. And, and I, and I just, I, I know that everybody has a version of this in their life, um, a thing that they are, or many things that they are afraid of and that are painful. And that, and that in some ways, you know, you just know that it's still a thing you have to do. And so, um, I, I hear you and I see you and, and, um, and we, we all sort of just have to walk through that fire, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a great way to, to end this. Um, thank you so much. It's been oh, thank so you for... nice to talk to you finally. And I'm, mm-hmm. I've been really excited about it. So I'm, and I've just been kind of excited to talk about the book. And I'm, um, I I want to thank you again for joining us.
2: Yeah, thank you, Case. I really appreciate being on here and your thoughtful questions. And um, and I'm glad that, that it worked out. It's great to get to
1: talk to you. This is Case Johnson. This is literally podcast. We've just spoken with uh, Tessa Fontaine, the author of The Electric Woman. Um, you can get it uh, anywhere. But I prefer you order it through your local independent bookstore. Um, ours is booked on 25th. And uh, I hope that you'll pick it up and check it out.